I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Welcome to the American Idea. I'm John Moser of Ashland University, and I'm very glad to have with us today Dr. George Selgin. He's coming to us from Granada, Spain. Dr. Selgin is Senior Fellow and Director Emeritus of Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. He's also Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Georgia. He is author of nine books, most recently, The Menace of Fiscal QE, which was published in 2020. And we're very glad to have him with us today because we want to talk about uh, bank failures. It's something that's certainly been in the news lately. Dr. Selgin has uh, has a lot to say on this subject, but we're specifically going to look today at uh, at the, the changes to the banking system that occurred in the 1930s as a result of the Great Depression and New Deal. Uh, and then we'll also talk about the relevance of that period, the lessons we may have learned from that period that might be applied to the banking situation today. Dr. Selgin, thank you for being with us. Thank you, John. So it's a real pleasure. Well, I, I just I'd like to start off uh, by by giving folks a baseline. What what did the U.S. banking system look like in the 1920s? That is before the arrival of the Depression and the New Deal. Well, <laughs> we had a very unusual banking system, uh, John. Uh, we had, had at the onset of the 1920s. Uh, something like 30,000 banks. Now, that's an incredible number of banks. Wow, most yeah. countries, most industrialized countries at that time could count their their banks in the, in the dozens uh, or perhaps the hundreds, but usually not. Usually it was a matter of a few dozen banks uh, with uh, fairly large networks of, of branches. And uh, this wasn't the case everywhere, but it was the case in quite a few places. And it was the natural tendency. If you let banks branch, they would have branches. And the reason for that is very simple. They would be trying to diversify their assets and liabilities. Those of your listeners who paid any attention at all to the recent bank failures have probably heard that lack of diversification had, had something to do with it. It wasn't the Absolutely. only thing. Yeah, but sure. it was part of, it's certainly part of the story. Well. The problem of a lack of diversification was a, a big problem back in the in the twenties and thirties, but it was caused by different. Uh, it had it was due to a different factor, which was the fact that banks couldn't branch geographically, and uh, in those days, especially if you wanted to diversify your assets and liabilities, you had to be able to physically go into different 
economies, so to speak, which could in the United States have meant uh, going further out somewhere in the same state, but better still if you could cross state lines and have branches in a really diverse number of different communities. So, so I could I could stop you there when you say the laws against banking. That is laws against uh, a single bank having outlets in in more than one state. That's correct. Yeah. Most many states, not all, but many states wouldn't let their banks have any branches anywhere. Uh, and certainly, those states weren't about to let banks chartered in other states come into their ter territories, with rare <laughs> exceptions only. And what reason, what was the reason, what was the rationale behind these laws? It's a good question. It's one of these cases of a kind of a bad equilibrium. You started out with every bank wanting to have exclusive privileges and exclusive little monopoly in its turf and fighting tooth and nail to keep other banks from being established. But every bank that did manage to get a charter anywhere and get an office would then uh, uh, cry, scream uh, bloody murder if another bank tried. So we ended up with this setup where we had lots of banks, but all of them were little, as it were, trying to be little monopolies of their territories. So okay. the, it was this it was this idea that uh, banking uh was the business that um that first of all required a special license from the government rather than a business you could enter like any other and then from there the fact that the banks would would see to it that it was as hard to get a charter as possible or at least that if someone else got a charter they would get it somewhere else and not come into their territories. Okay. Now, there were parts of the country where you ended up with so many banks that um, uh, uh, it looked like a pretty competitive industry. But the fact was that in many communities, you had only one bank. And, uh, and, and, and so that you didn't really have a lot of local competition. And that bank would have been tiny. It would have been very weak and underdiversified. Uh, it might depend entirely on one crop or one business to to keep uh, uh, from failing. So that's what we had. So these 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 very small banks and communities would their uh, their their deposits would have been entirely based on the local on local wealth. So they depend entirely on a very local economy. They're, meanwhile, they're extending loans within the same community. Uh, That's a right. bad, a bad harvest comes along, maybe a drought, uh, and 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 banks get wiped out. Yes, that's right, John. And it's important to stress this because uh, thousands of banks failed, not only in the 30s. Uh, in the 1920s, thousands of banks failed uh, without there being a Great Depression. And people think today of banks failures being failures of big banks certainly those are the ones we hear about but in in those days certainly most of the failures were very small banks and they failed for just the reason you said they the lack of diversity meant that they were extremely vulnerable to to local shocks because farming was struggling with low prices generally in the 20s 
a lot of banks succumbed because of that. The crops were not getting prices that made it possible for farmers to pay back their mortgages or other loans, and the banks suffered accordingly and, and became insolvent. Well, uh, what role did the Federal Reserve play in all this? Of course, it had been in existence throughout the 1920s. Did it not exist partially to address this problem? It did. Uh, it was created to try to contain bank failures and especially crises that that could arise because of them. But um, the Fed had a couple important, very important uh, uh, disadvantages as far as the kinds of failures we've been discussing are concerned. One very obvious disadvantage was that not all these banks were members of the Federal Reserve System. There were two kinds of banks, first of all. There were the ones start chartered by uh, the federal government called national banks, and then there were state chartered banks, and we still have both kinds today. National banks all had to be members of the Fed, but state chartered banks didn't have to be, and many of them weren't, so they didn't even have the privilege of trying to get uh, last resort loans from the Fed if they found themselves in trouble. So that was part of the problem. But the other part of the problem, which affected even the member banks, was that uh, the Fed was set up with the idea that uh, it would discount what was called commercial paper. That is, it, it accepted as collateral only a fairly limited set of assets from its members. And in rural communities, the banks didn't have the eligible collateral. They didn't deal in commercial paper or anything like it. So they simply didn't have the, the means for qualifying for Federal Reserve loans. Uh, so as far as many of these rural banks were concerned, the Fed was really of no help at all. It was, mm -hmm. was, they, they, they did not have the paper that they needed to go to the Fed and say, hey, would you buy this from me so I can have some more cash to give my customers? And and uh, and so that was that. They were out in the cold for that reason. Am I right in saying then that okay, you've got this Federal Reserve system that protects the the big guys, but not the little fish. Um, mm -hmm. But you have at the end of the 1920s and into the 1930s a situation where so many of the little fish are dying off that they're pulling down the big ones, even though they have Federal Reserve protection. That's exactly what was happening. Part of what was happening, John, because. And this ties in with the lack of branch facilities also. Precisely because these banks couldn't have branches, most of them, what they did instead, and the laws encouraged this, is to have, have correspondent accounts with banks in the larger cities. That is, if they wanted to tap into Chicago, if you're a, a rural bank in Illinois, or if you wanted to tap into the New York market, you created an account in a bank in one of those cities and kept some of your reserves in the form of deposit credits in that account, you might earn some interest on it that way. And this was particularly desirable in the off season, that is the non-harvest season for the rural banks, because nothing was going on then in the countryside. There was nobody to lend to. So to get a little bit of money, they would put all the money in their correspondent accounts. Hmm. Well, when things got went sour uh, for the small banks, 
they would take all their money or more of their money out of their city correspondence. And so that could jeopardize the correspondence. And uh, the result is that they would find themselves hard pressed. They might be able to go to the Fed and ask for help in that case, but they were more likely to have to do it because of this setup. And we'll get to this probably later. In the Depression, though, the situation uh, kind of turned around. There were troubles in some of the big banks, and there were fears of big bank failures in the city. And that caused all the country banks to take all their money out just in case <laughs> and, and made things worse that way. So the correspondent relationship, which is this setup where banks, instead of branching into other territories, uh, keep accounts at other banks, created connections in the banking system that tended to magnify and spread problems from one part of it to others. So um, what we have, at my, my, my sense is, between 1929 and, 19, and 1932 are uh, a perfect storm situation where you've got uh, droughts and local crop failures, but you've also got the uh, the collapse of stock prices. You've got the collapse of, of banks going on uh, going on in in Europe, for example. Uh, could you say more about the, the the factors that come together? It was like you, as you've already well explained, the 1920s are already a, a period of of tremendous bank failure. But then things get so much worse in the early 1930s. That's right. So we have as a background these weak banks and the correspondence system that tends to spread trouble around in the banking system. Uh, but mainly the uh, underlying problems that affect mostly the rural banks are agricultural. Agriculture is in trouble ever since World War II because of over overplanting, so to speak. World War, and, War I. Uh, World War I, pardon me, thank you, Jeff. I got my war, wars mixed up because I'm writing about the other one now. Anyway, uh, the the uh, so that's the background. Now, what's happening after 1929 is that uh, you have a worsening international liquidity problems, and this all has to do with the gold standard and and its workings. But um, to make a, a very long story short, uh, in 1931 for example, Britain suspends the gold standard. And I want to point out here that the gold standard that's causing trouble now, that is the internet interwar gold standard, uh, was a kind of a Rube Goldberg setup. It was another very unstable, very tenuous uh, arrangement that was itself a product of uh, World War One, And um, it depended for its stability on cooperation among the world's central banks. And that especially meant at this time that countries needed to rely on, uh, as it were, central banks kept their own correspondent relationships with other central banks. And for example, were expected to treat deposits at the Bank of England or at the Fed as if they were as good as gold and not cash in those chips because that would cause a lot of trouble. Well, <laughs> what happened is that, for example, France started cashing in its Bank of England credits, hoarding gold, 
the Bank of England had to suspend the gold standard. That had repercussions throughout the whole gold standard uh, uh, zone, including the United States, as people feared that there might be uh, a suspension of the gold standard in other countries as well. And that caused uh, hoarding of gold, which, of course, is an example of a, a potential self-fulfilling prophecy. We managed to avoid going off the gold standard at that time, but it was a close-run thing. Uh, and it was only possible to avoid it because the United States entered the Great Depression with very, very, very high gold reserves. Mm -hmm. But over the course of the 1930s, the early 1930s, with wave after wave of banking crisis and fears and all that, culminating with the big crisis in February 1933, the jitters about gold uh, grew to a climax. And you had basically a gold panic in February, March 33. That was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Because mm -hmm. at that point, at that point, uh, the, the, the Federal Reserve itself feared that it wouldn't be able <laughs> to right. maintain gold convertibility and ask for the banking system to be shut down. So, so the system sort of bottoms out in February of 1933. Roosevelt is inaugurated as president in March. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. How does how does his administration's response to the crisis shape the uh, the system and change the system? Well, there's a very very interesting story here because. Um, <laughs> There was during the so-called interregnum, which is the period in those days, the president's elected in November, like today, but he only assumed office in March of the next year. So you have this period when the ex-president is still the president, but he's a lame duck. Well, unfortunately, that was the last election when that was true, but it was very unfortunate because it meant that you had this banking crisis occurring. When the new president isn't yet in office and the old one is a lame duck and he's a lame duck faced with the Democratic Congress and Senate who don't necessarily want to cooperate with him. So you had a kind of stalemate. You had Hoover saying to FDR, listen, would you come on board if I do this, that or the other thing? Would you tell the Congress that you're behind it so that they'll cooperate? And FDR saying, look, man, I'm still a private citizen. I don't want, this is your problem. You handle it. Yeah. And in the meantime, the banking system is absolutely collapsing. It's hard to say who to blame the most between the two for what happened. But that's the story in a nutshell. Yeah. So uh, it's actually uh, when the inauguration comes, it's precisely then that the banking system has just collapsed. And he's going to declare a banking national banking holiday right after he takes office the next day. It was a weekend, I think, when the inauguration took place. So he's going to not open the banks on Monday. But everything he does during that emergency, everything the Roosevelt administration does, consists of things that Hoover and his team wanted to do, but didn't dare do or wouldn't be allowed to do by the Democratic Congress. In particular, shutting down all the banks, declaring a national bank holiday, 
there was really not a good, solid constitutional basis for it. And FDR knew that. That's why he actually had Congress vote retroactively to say that this was okay. <laughs> but Hoover knew he couldn't do that. He couldn't, he couldn't count on Congress. So he didn't dare to declare the holiday uh, when he was still in office. Yeah. And a lot more banks failed as a result. Anyway. FDR's in office now, and he shut down the banks, all the banks. And then what he does um, is to come up, is to announce a plan, his famous fireside chat, explaining what they're going to do, how the banks are going to be reopened slowly at first, after supposedly being carefully audited, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of this is designed to try to restore confidence in the banking system. And of course, Part of that is also, you can't have gold anymore, folks. <laughs> so forget about running on your banks for that reason. Now, was 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 Hoover intending to, uh, to go off the gold standard? This is one of those things where I don't think he would have had any choice. Yeah. Uh, because the Fed had asked for the bank holiday, not, not the private banks. The New York banks themselves didn't want the holiday. But the Fed was worried about running out of gold, and people don't realize it was the New York Fed that that requested uh, a national bank holiday. He first requested the the state of New York shut down the banks. So at, as soon as the Fed did that, it was suspending the gold standard, whether you know whether we could, called it that or not. When you stop paying gold, that's it. You are not on the gold standard for the time being. Sure. Uh, Hoover would have had to do the same thing in shutting down the banks. And he did want to shut down the banks, but he wanted Roosevelt to sign off on it with him. He also, and this was very bad, he wanted Roosevelt effectively to renounce all, all the New Deal stuff he'd been talking about during his mm. campaign. And say, you know, <laughs> to, he basically wanted him, wanted him to say, oh, you know, Hoover's right. And FDR <laughs> didn't want anything to do with that. Anyway, so they all let the things go to pot. But uh, during the holiday, all the steps that were taken were ones that the Hoover's treasury team had planned. Even the script of the famous fireside chat, which was so well delivered with by Roosevelt, it was one. It's a wonderful performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Contributed a lot to restoring people's confidence, though there were other factors involved there, important ones. Uh, Even that, the 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 original draft was written by Hoover treasury official who stayed on with others during this emergency they stayed there and they were the ones who had the plan about reopening the banks and all that so it was all this was all hoover but it took the roosevelt administration to actually implement it all Mm -hmm. um and what changed okay a lot of things change now but uh Mm -hmm. perhaps what's most important in answer to the question what's changing with this uh, development is what didn't change because the long run story here is going to be that the branch banking system that was I mean the unit banking system the absence of branching all these weak banks that's not going to change because of a very powerful lobbies are going to try by hook or by crook to see to it that the structure of the banking system after the big holiday is going to be more or less the same one that led to it and this this was an opportunity for structural reform, but it was an opportunity that that was passed up. But that, of course, 
that, of course, begs the question, what are they going to do to get people to put money in these banks again after what's happened? Sure, yeah. And I think you know where I'm going with this, <clears throat> because there was a way to do that, and that was deposit insurance. Right. So you really had, and back to, to, to go back a bit, for some years, you had uh, people trying to fight for having banks branch nationwide, and then you had people arguing that we should have deposit insurance. So these these things had been around, these ideas had been around for a while, but there wasn't any real uh, uh, support for either of them. The unit bankers were against any sort of uh, uh, branching, and nobody liked deposit insurance. They'd seen experiments with it on the state level, and they all ended up failing. And 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 this was yeah. I, I know Roosevelt Roosevelt himself was skeptical. Roosevelt about, himself right? was among the critics. His position, and so was Hoover. They all thought it was dangerous to insure banks because it would take discipline out of the system. Mm. It would allow the weak banks to uh, essentially get subsidized at the expense of the more s safe ones. Um, and um, and so they they all thought it was dangerous and it would ultimately be very costly the way the state systems were that when they failed, the taxpayers had to were on the hook often yeah. for uh, the promises they'd made that they didn't have the funding to keep on their own. But yeah. doesn't Glass-Steagall uh, couple uh, federal deposit uh, insurance with with regulation? Yes, it does. So there was more to the reforms than just deposit insurance, but it's important to understand it was only because of the cataclysmic failures uh, that now you have, you do have support for deposit insurance, given that branch banking still has powerful opposition. You know you have to do something. So there's some log rolling that goes on, and the result of this is, the Banking Act of 1933, not the Emergency Banking Act, which has to do with what went on during the holidays, right, the bank holiday, but the Banking Act that's permanent that comes later. In that act, you have deposit insurance, though with limits, it's, it's, it's just going to be ultimately 5000 per account. But you also have, as you were mentioning, you have other reforms, and this was to placate the critics of deposit insurance, you're going to have, uh, among these other reforms, the separation of investment and commercial banking, and also pretty strict restrictions on the interest rates that banks can pay on various kinds of deposits. What this is doing, what these steps do, is limit the opportunities for risk-taking that might otherwise have been abused because of deposit insurance, and that puts that and the limited insurance company uh, a coverage, the cap on insurance, which is five grand, ultimately, those things together serve for decades to keep deposit insurance from having the adverse effects that people like FDR and many others feared. It, things are very quiet and it works pretty well, but it is a, because it's a uh, it's not just a single piece of legislation ensuring deposits, but a uh, basket of regula new regulations 
one of which ensures deposits to a limited extent. And Roosevelt was very keen on keep, keeping that limit low. He couldn't put the kibosh to the whole thing, but he did, I think, succeed in keeping the limits low. And he did it in a clever way we can talk about. But the other thing that uh, they did was to impose new limits on the activities banks could engage in and the rates they could pay. Those restrictions, Glass-Steagall and limits on interest rate payments, in and of themselves, they weren't good things. That is, in, a, in an environment without the perverse effects of deposit insurance, it would have been better to let banks you know, do those other things. It's not true, by the way, that any... Any bank, any important bank failure took place in the Depression because of a bank's involvement with securities. That's a myth that's hard to eradicate. Oh. Nevertheless, it's true. That's why I talked about farm problems and not stock market problems, oh. because stock market problems were not banks' problems. They okay. had a lot of other things to deal with. But if anything, the banks that had securities activities and affiliates were among the banks that tended to do better during the Depression. So it was a myth. Anyway, though, once you have insurance, well, um, at that point, anything that limits opportunities for risk-taking could actually turn out to be beneficial. It's a case of two wrongs, making making something closer to a right, if not, not quite a right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's the story about uh, the Banking Act of 1933, in a nutshell. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. That, that that's really very interesting. I'm wondering if we couldn't switch gears a little and talk about how the the Federal Reserve changed in the 1930s yes. and its connection to the banking system. Well, um, one of the other things that they wanted to do, uh, uh, that is, the uh, uh, some reformers, was to increase the membership in the Federal Reserve. Uh, Glass Carter Glass of the famous Glass Steagall pair. He was very keen, and, and here again, Roosevelt uh, was with him on this. He, Roosevelt was kind of a Carter Glass um, uh, 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 protege. He, he he would have done everything Glass wanted, and none of the things Steagall wanted. If you could, it wasn't Glass. It wasn't. It wasn't Glass FDR's first choice for Treasury Secretary. Yes, he was, and yeah. it caused a lot of trouble. Uh, this gets back to the banking problems, because remember, I was saying that. After Britain got off the gold standard, um, you had people were jittery about whether the U.S. would be among the countries that 
devalued or otherwise changed the gold standard. Well, when uh, Roosevelt approached Glass to be his secretary, treasury secretary, Glass refused because he didn't trust Roosevelt to keep the gold standard. And the word got out about that, and it did not help the banking situation. It was one of the factors informing the withdrawals of gold from the system that February. And uh, so um, it's a very dangerous, tricky thing, a gold standard. You can you can mess around with a gold standard in all sorts of ways. You can even devalue. You can you can suspend. Well, what you can't do is say that you're going to do any of these things in advance. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, then, of course, you you're, you're going to have to do something that you might not want to do right away. Right. Anyway, um, so Glass uh, Glass was somebody who wanted to see the Fed's membership in, um, uh, uh, reinforced. Others wanted to see the board get more powers. And, you know, most people agreed by 1935 that the Federal Reserve hadn't done much good to avoid all the troubles that we've been talking about. I think this wasn't just something Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, uh, the famous economists who wrote the history of the Fed and the U.S. monetary policy concluded in the 60s. They said that the Fed had basically laid an egg in the Depression. But they weren't. There were people at the time who understood that. That's the big reason, approximately, why there were a lot of changes made to the Federal Reserve Act at this time, including the the big change in the Banking Act of 1935 that gave the Board of Governors a lot more power, which it's had ever since compared to the powers possessed by the individual reserve banks and their presidents. Uh, I'm afraid this is just one of many examples where the Fed board has gotten more power as a result of things not working very well. We seem to think that if you give the Fed more and more power, it'll eventually have the power to do the right thing, and it never seems to work. But um, in any event, uh, the Fed was strengthened, uh, and the board particularly was strengthened. Uh, rules were changed to increase the access of uh, 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 to encourage more banks to join the Federal Reserve System. The state banks still did not have to, um, and uh, some steps were taken to modify the collateral requirements. Uh, of Fed lending and and to introduce new lending programs. Finally, of course, the biggest change or one of them was that the gold standard was gone. It was officially permanently um, eliminated, uh, at least for U.S. citizens, in April of of nineteen thirty three, and uh, uh, and then uh, that is. It was permanently suspended then. And ultimately, of course, the gold dollar was devalued, which meant that foreign central banks, uh, once they could have their gold exchange gold for dollars and vice versa, were going to get a, have to pay more for their gold or, sure. uh, or sell it for more. Sure. So uh, in some ways, a significant change to the banking landscape as a result of the 1930s but in others, there's still no branch branch banking. Yeah. Let's 
maybe jump more to the to the present day. You, you did talk about how the the banking reforms of the nineteen of the thirties do create something of a stable system. Some regulation mm -hmm. on the one hand, and in deposit insurance on the other. Uh, what's happening? And in, 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 sure, if you look at the numbers of bank failures that follow, there's it's like night and day compared to the nineteen twenties. That's right. But, Very few failures for quite a long uh, time. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, so we have this quiet period in banking, you know, where there are very few failures. The banks give you toasters instead of paying interest. Bankers are playing golf at 3.30 and all that. And um, it seems like it, it's not the best uh, customer service in the world, but at least uh, banks aren't failing left and right. That's the good news. Unfortunately, and I put it this way in, in something I wrote recently, in retrospect, it looks like a fool's paradise. And that's because ultimately this attempt to make banks banking safe while ensuring bank deposits depends on being able to limit banks' risks, and that depends ultimately on uh, being able to insulate them from a lot of competition. Hmm. What happens is that uh, several things develop in the, in the course of the 60s and 70s that cause this setup, this nice, quiet experience to unravel. Hmm. One is that inflation is getting worse and worse and interest rates are rising as a result. And we've seen how recently that can put banks under a lot of pressure. Absolutely. Most obviously, in this case, it meant that um, if they wanted to attract deposits, particularly in the face of rival arrangements, like the then novel money market funds that were mm -hmm. appearing, or euro dollars uh, accounts in banks that weren't subject to US regulations, then um, the only way the U.S. banks and other savings and loan and other institutions are going to be able to avoid having all their deposits slowly leach out of them is to be given permission to start paying higher interest rates. And this eventually they got. Yeah. So there goes that constraint on risk taking, because if banks can set any interest rate they want, they then the least responsible of them can go after risky assets and loans and and try to attract deposits with the high rates mm. and uh, and and that's that's deposit insurance starting to take its toll yeah. the other yeah. thing that's happening is that um you have uh, a lot of pressure for banks to uh, diversify in other ways in order to compete but the big thing, the big thing that's happening is this deregulation of interest rates. For most of the savings and loans, it all comes too late. The mm -hmm. savings and loans in particular, uh, like some of the recent banks today, had they had these long-term mortgages that were their bread and butter. Okay. And they made these mortgages at very low interest rates in the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s. And remember, these are 20, 30-year mortgages, and now interest rates are rising. So they're caught by the duration risk of the same sort that killed off SVB uh, recently, right. where they're, they, uh, 
they're holding these mortgages that are worth less and less because mm-hmm. interest rates are rising and they're yo- low yield mortgages. Uh, and uh, and they have to pay higher rates to continue to attract deposits. So they're basically earning less on their mortgages than they're having to pay to keep them funded. Huh. It, and, thousand, and they start dropping like flies in the 80s, late 70s. And the whole federal uh, uh, savings and loan insurance corporation goes broke. Talk cost the taxpayers all sorts of money, and it's the first. It's the as it were. It's the it's a big canary, but it's a canary in a coal mine, warning us that after all, the deposit insurance chickens may be coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. Some of them have, and the banks are also in trouble, and the FDIC is in trouble, but it manages to eventually survive that crisis but 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 you do have also during this period you see federal deposit insurance balloon from five thousand dollars to right. a quarter million that's right it gradually it did and it started in the 80s but here's what's happening right interest rates rise at first the banks are being squeezed by this they're losing deposits they're not able to uh, continue attracting them. One of the things that and and banks start to fail and savings and loans start to fail. So it's harder to do the necessary deregulation and avoid the losses. Uh, you can't do much about that, but you can raise the deposit insurance coverage. So they raise the deposit insurance coverage to make up for losses that ultimately are connected to the regulations that were designed to limit risk-taking with insured deposits. But then, (laughs) eventually, they also get around to eliminating some of those regulations. So what you get up, end up with is a system where there's more insurance coverage and fewer uh, uh, regulations to contain risk-taking. And so this, every every incentive for irresponsible behavior. Yeah, this feedback yeah. process keeps happening. But one of the big steps here was the 1980 Depository Insurances Deregulation and Monetary Control Act, which is a mouthful. But in that one act, they raised the deposit insurance limit to 100,000 at the same time that they got rid of some of the more important regulations on mm. interest rates. So in the same piece of legislation is undoing two components of Glass-Steagall and some others as well. And so, but it's, 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 it's undoing, sorry, it's undoing one component and strengthening the other. It's, it's upping the insurance and weakening the regulations. And now, so, the more you go down that road, the more moral hazard kicks in, which, which right. is banks... Uh, being inclined to take advantage of insurance to pursue risky ventures, hoping that the depositors won't mind and will even be grateful to have a few extra points of interest or basis points. And now we have the Biden administration suggesting that deposits of any size will be guaranteed. So what I was going to say about that is, so we tried a system 
with weak unit banks. That didn't work. We tried a system with insured unit banks, among other weak institutions, with a lot of regulations to limit the potential hazards of insurance. And it worked for a while, but couldn't be sustained. Then we tried upping the insurance and getting rid of some of the regulations, and we've had nothing but trouble ever since. Mm. There is one more parameter or variable in all this, and that is, well, if you could just get the supervisors and regulators to watch out for these banks and watch them more carefully Mm. and catch them before they do anything wrong, well, that will solve the problem. And that also doesn't work. (laughs) So the more you insure the banks, the more you insure the banks while allowing them opportunities to uh, take risks, which in an internationally competitive banking environment, you don't have much choice about. You can only Mm -hmm. constrain the banking activities in one country to a a very limited degree before those banks start to suffer uh, in the international playing field. You end up relying extremely heavily on your regulators' diligence Mm. to spot problems in advance and close banks down quickly before they cause too much damage. And and that has never, ever worked. (laughs) So (laughs) where do you see things going from here and what do you, two separate questions, what do you think should happen and what would you like to see happen? What I'd like to see happen, that's easier to to answer. Uh, And it's consistent, I I hope, it seems consistent with what I've been saying, is we need need strong banks that are well diversified and that uh, have strong incentives to uh, limit the risks that they take. And that means we can't have so much insurance floating around and we certainly can't have explicit 100 percent insurance though um, it must be said that there are good arguments as to why explicit insurance is less dangerous than insurance that's merely implicit and given after the fact that's probably the worst possible arrangement is when you you know you 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 don't nominally you have limits on insurance and people who aren't covered but every time something happens you cover them so nobody really thinks they're covered but then every once in a while you don't cover them and they get beat up and now you've really got a mess so i can sympathize to that extent with people who say let's just say we're going to insure it all but that is also a, just a different road to ruin uh i think that we have to figure out and this is where things get tough we have to figure out how to have not just limits on insurance. And by the way, I don't think that insurance has to be non-existent. I think Roosevelt and others had it right when they said, okay, you know, let's insure little people. Let's mm-hmm. insure people who aren't wealthy up to a certain point. That is, we'll insure accounts. You can do that in other ways. You can say we're going to insure 80% of your account or 75 or you can just have a maximum amount. Either of those things can be sufficient to contain moral hazard, um, but it has to be credible. That is, the people have to believe that they are going to be responsible and bear some losses if their banks fail, that that can happen. 
So making the making the caps or limits credible, that's the hard part because it's a it's a boy who cried mm-hmm. wolf too many times situation, mm-hmm. right? How do you get that uh credibility back? Now there are other things you can do to make banks strong. Uh mm-hmm. It's no longer the case that branch banking is, you know, uh, necessary. It's been, it's legal and uh, it happens and there are no important barriers to it since the 90s. And that in itself is a good thing. But there are some other things we might try to get uh, to fix again. One of the consequences of upping insurance over the years is that bank capital suffers. Capital is a substitute for insurance. Basically, if you're a depositor without insurance, capital, bank capital, that's your insurance. That mm-hmm. means that that's how much the bank has to lose before you stand to lose anything. So what happened after the insurance was introduced is we saw bank capital ratios fall, and then we had to regulate them in all sorts of ways. I think that uh, limiting insurance should, conversely, uh, serve to encourage banks or make it necessary for more banks to hold more insurance if it can be done credibly. Hmm. The other thing we could consider in, in the way of more nostalgic reforms is how before the advent of deposit insurance, we hmm. had multiple liability for bank shareholders, uh, especially double liability. That is, the norm was that if you were a shareholder in a bank, not only would you be wiped out if your bank failed, that meant that you can't have anything for your shares. You also were liable up to the par value of those shares uh, for losses that your creditors, the bank's creditors suffered that it couldn't pay. So if you had the bank in liquidation still owes uh, its depositors uh, let's say a million dollars or something, a few million. Uh, it can make a call on the shareholders huh. to make those depositors whole up to the par value of their shares. And this is how it used to work. The idea isn't to impoverish bank shareholders. Certainly, it's not to scare them away. It is to give them more powerful incentives to see to it that their banks avoid excessive risk taking Hmm. and it seems to have worked well when it was allowed it had its disadvantages to be sure but it's something worth considering again i don't know if we can ever go back but there are some serious lawyers and economists who think it's worth considering so multiple or double liability for bank shareholders limited deposit insurance not absence of deposit insurance these are the things that can restore uh, market discipline into the banking system because you're doing two things. You're giving at least wealthier depositors, you're wanting to make sure they have an incentive to be careful who they bank with, and you're giving a similar incentive to shareholders. that They want to have a very strong incentive to keep their banks from failing or Close them early if they're in trouble, right? Yeah. You've got extended liability. You're going to close your bank down when it can still pay off its depositors with its remaining assets because you're on the hook for any deeper it goes into that hole. So these are substitutes. These are substitutes for trying 
The only alternative, it's you can't regulate away risk. The bankers are always going to find new ways to get risky. And in an environment that's highly competitive, you just can't do too much to your banks without killing them with the regulations. Sure. So the only alternative is insure everybody 100% and rely on regulators to keep things nice. And that is <laughs> not, it's just not going to work. It's not that the regulators are irresponsible. It's just... It's just asking too much from them because right. they can never, they're pretty good at knowing how to guard against the risks that caused the last big bank failure. They're very bad at guarding against the ones that are going to cause the next one. So I guess we could say that that like like generals who are always fighting the last war, they're regulators are fighting the last war, yeah. Fixing yeah, the so last crisis. Well, that's we right. Have we have uh, reached the end of our time. Uh, George Selgin, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. Uh, it, it's uh, It's been a pleasure. And it seems to me uh, talking about the, the relation of new, new Deal era banking reform to our present situation is one more reminder of William Faulkner's axiom, the past is never dead, it's not even past. So once That's again, right. yeah. thank you, George, for being with us. Not at all. Enjoyed you. it, John. And thank Thanks you all for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.